Hi folks, Damien here, aka Irish Trekkie, back again with another Nerd Escape podcast, and with me today we have... Chris, the Trek Collector. Welcome back, folks, and we have a very special guest for you. Anyone that might have seen this book, own this book, yes, we have Laura, the author of Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise. Say hello, Laura. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and... Uh, this is this is a big deal for me because I, when I was talking to you going back, um, you know, this kind of really, you know, opened up the enterprise more so to me and started instead of just doodling outside shapes, started doing cutaways and probably as well helped with model building and stuff like that. But really kind of to see the inner heart of the enterprise. So to me, this is a big one and I'm delighted to have you on the show. And I know Damien's delighted to have you on the show. Um, how do you feel? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, I'm fine. Brilliant. Um, so it's uh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to do something different this week, and I'm going to let Damien start off for a change, because I'm always giving my top five first. Um, but this <laughs> week, because we decided that uh, with Laura on the show, we kind of like we like trying to give you all kind of backgrounds to how we got how we like Star Trek. So we're going to do a top five TV shows this week. So we're going to let Damien kick this off and then I'm going to do my top five and then we're going to let Laura give give us her top five. And in the comment section below, then you can turn around and say who you'd like to have a, a TV night in with. And let us know who you prefer. Just click the like button beside me, Damien or Laura. So Damien. <laughs> and the rule still stands uh, that it's no Star Trek for us two, isn't it? Because that's too easy. I'm not right. <laughs> you can Laura but we can't <laughs> now I'm actually going to I'm going to count on my fingers because the last time I did this I realized after when I was editing the video I only mentioned four movies so um, yeah I'm going to be sure I'm going to mention five TV shows and uh, it was tough really tough to um, exclude the epic franchise that is Star Trek um, but number one um, I put down Battlestar Galactica, um, basically the um, re-envisioned one. Um, I just thought that was an amazing TV show. I loved how um, it was filmed from like the crew's perspective, from like command right down to the grunts and um, the movers and engineering and, and so on and so forth. So definitely Battlestar Galactica. Number two, um, it was hard to kind of whittle it down, but Stargate universe sad to say that it was cancelled prematurely but um the other stargates are amazing but i just loved everything about universe i loved the story i loved the visuals and i just think it was great casting as well and had so much potential but unfortunately in this fickle age of uh, ratings and everything like that it was just cut down in its prime so uh stargate universe is there uh number three uh, I'm a pretty big Whovian, so Doctor Who is in there. Again, I'm a bit slow to the party, and I haven't gone back to the original Doctor Whos, but uh, this is really from um, Eccleston onwards as well. So I'm curious to know who your favourite Doctor is down below as well. So again, Doctor Who, just a bit timey-wimey fun. Um, we're up to number four, Chris, aren't we? I think so, yeah. <laughs> number four, um, I actually put in uh, Thunderbirds. Uh, it was a marionation um, puppet show from back in the day as well. Every episode was like a movie in itself. And um, again, if you haven't or if you don't know what Thunderbirds are and don't look at the latest movie, 
just go back to the old school and check out the TV shows from Clive Anderson. And uh, number five, there was a few that kind of popped up on the list here as well. But um, I'm kind of going to go a bit left field. Um, there was a show back in the day. I can't remember the exact year now, but it was called Space Above and Beyond. Um, just a fantastic near future sci-fi show where um, human beings are just kind of going off into space and the, they have a bit of a threat there. But again, I just like the whole stylized universe of it and the fact that it was almost in present day, but not quite. So um, they're my top five so far. Hopefully you like them. Wow. Um, it was it was very tough. I spoke to Laura and said this was easy, but it's not. I said, I remember saying to you, Laura, just go with the top of your heart. And <laughs> this to me was very, very tough. Space above me on Damien. Great call. I would have loved to have it on my list. It just didn't make it, but absolutely good one. David Tennant is my favorite doctor. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I'm going to start off at number one. And this actually hurts me to say, I can't believe I'm throwing in a reboot, but it is Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> exactly the same reasons as yourself, Damien. It was absolutely fantastically well done. It's kind of very hard for me not to pick the original show, but I have to say that the new version was done excellent. And I'm going to put Doctor Who in there, which you said as well, uh, Damien. And it was around 2005. And I do kind of have early childhood memories of old Doctor Who's. But it was kind of very funny. I never kind of got into the time to get, get synced in to see when the episodes. And back then, they were kind of like done in four parts. So you, if you kind of missed one or two, you were kind of bunched. Um, Lost in Space. Um, I love that TV show. Um, it's just one of those, just from an early childhood, just everything about it. Danger Will Robinson. <laughs> never going out of my head. Um, I've also got a Stargate in there. And again, universe I was thinking of, but I'm going to go with Stargate Atlant uh, Atlantis. Um, again, not as dark probably as universe. I did like the way universe went. And I, I thought like, again, like any kind of show, I suppose we see it in Star Trek quite a lot. Like up to Next Generation season three after that, like once you kind of get to know the characters and so forth like that, uh, it's, it's just a connection with the viewers. And it was the same with Deep Space Nine, I found, and Voyager. And it's such a shame because like, when it finished on season two it was very good but Stargate Atlantis uh, great crew uh, great storyline and I really enjoyed it and for my last one mm. smoke me a kipper I'll be back for breakfast it is Red Dwarf I had to put it in there <laughs> nice. um, crazy UK sci-fi um, absolutely hilarious um, <laughs> probably at the stage when that was kind of air and this was kind of like probably one of the TV shows that I can remember that was on like a Friday night at such a time and I just cancelled everything and made sure that I was home to watch it. So there's there's my top five. So, Laura, over to you. I know you were telling me this was going to be hard. Right. This is really, really hard. Um, and I don't know that I can put these in any specific order. Don't worry. That's fine. But uh, in the top five, um, of course, you would have the original Star Trek. Um, I grew up with that. It's It seems like most people's favorite star trek series is the one they first knew the one they grew up with when they were young and um not to give away my age but i was around for the original when it when it first came out so um that would be one uh a few of these probably you're not going to be expecting from me um the second one i think would be monty python's flying circus oh i just yes. love that show and uh um never miss it if i can help it and in uh, that one, it, it was so influential and had had such an effect on on comedy across the board. 
and and I also grew up with it a little bit, so that was uh, that was there too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Then um, the original Twilight Zone uh, is a show that I just adore, and uh, um, especially the one-hour episodes. Those were were brilliant. But I mean, there are very few episodes of that that, that weren't just riveting, and uh, so that one I like very very much. Um, let's see what else uh i think i would need to go with uh space 1999 mm. um another one that i that i like very much and um for a lot of different reasons i like the first year better than the second year um just the the feel of it the mood of it the music everything um i thought was just brilliant and the effects were brilliant, and the the designs and everything. Um, I just really, really, really enjoyed that one. Um, let's see. I think I've got one more. Uh, I think for my last one, I would have to go with The Simpsons um, because, <laughs> again, that's another show that that I've never seen an episode I didn't like, and uh, <laughs> never fails to make me laugh. So it's. Uh, um, the show that never ends. Fun. Yeah, many seasons of The Simpsons. Yeah. Is right, there now, Laura? It keeps going, <laughs> it keeps going and going. That's right. So should, I think those would be my top five. Brilliant. You share. You actually share a program that uh, John Eves mentioned as well, Space Ninety Nine, and uh, the amount of times it crashed the ships and that. Um, it's one that I still like. I I don't know how I watched it, but any time it was on, just I was just fascinated. And I think going back to your question about the Star Trek and who was original. I know Damien will always say Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, I was just lucky enough before Next Generation came on, I was introduced to Star Trek through the original series. So the original series would be kind of like, I, I would put that before the Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine would be my favourite. So, okay. you know, that's kind of, uh, it's, I, think it, I think it is very true with most people, Damien. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, like that, 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 was, that was a great kind of perception there, uh, Laura, that you have this fondness for the the show that you personally were introduced to because like your top fives there's never a wrong answer because they're yours and um it's so hard like when when chris mentioned top five i was like I, i'm gonna kill you because that should be like more like top hundred um because it's so hard to kind of right, them yeah. down but um you know it's it's interesting for me as well that I was introduced really from for, for my particular age TNG was what I kind of grew up with but um I've recently got back into the original series um in a pretty big way because um the availability of it and the fact that it's been remastered um as well has given it a bit more accessibility and I'm just surprised even though it is dated yes per se and you know the language and the effects and stuff but um, it's the roots of it all, and you know you have to kind of give a kudos on that. And there's some fantastic episodes and just characters in that show. And I really would urge everybody who are, who's watching this or anyone who's Star Trek orientated to do go back, give the original series another go, and just sit back and you know enjoy yourselves. But fantastic, I love it. Good choice. Yeah, I am very. Um fond of the remastered episodes i mean that i i love the original too because that is what i grew up with but um they did such a wonderful job um in the remastering and everything looks so good and we get to see ships we didn't get to see before um 
mm. that were only mentioned and uh it's um you know i, I think that they, did, they just did a spectacular job with it and honorable mention i have to, I, I, you mentioned red dwarf i love red dwarf so that you know didn't make my top five but i do love that show and uh i understand they're making some new ones now and so i'm really happy about that yes and uh so's my son he, he loves the show too <laughs> um but uh anyway yeah what was it uh yeah speaking of i just showed up party muds ship and that that was a well called it never made made it onto uh tos it was kind of it was mike designed this one i think that's the only ship he's actually designed is it oh, might be. no um he designed um the ship that charlie x came on as well um that's, the name escapes that's me. right yeah that, um, no, actually yes. that, that was the antares the antares was actually based on a ship that was seen in the animated episodes that's the ah, cargo right, the cargo ship there so mm. Um, we we did get to see that design before. Yeah, ah, now well spotted. There we go. Now, but yeah, so like yeah, Har- Harry Mudd's ship, which was it was a nice feature of the of the remastered, and I think I know some fans aren't too keen on the remastered, but um, the Doomsday Machine, right? <laughs> I love that. Good, I remember, I remember yeah. when they first kind of they were kind of sneaking these episodes out piece by piece when they were remastered. I think. What, did they get televised first before they went on the CD? I think they could have been televised so. first. I think so. Yeah, mm. they they, 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 put them out, they put them out by seasons. They put out the yeah. first season first, and then and then worked on the second, and then worked on the third. And and there are some episodes that, that I was just really fascinated with with what they did, like the the immunity syndrome. Um, I've always liked that episode, the one with the big amoeba, and and going in and redoing the effects on that. Um, I think helped a great deal, especially the shuttlecraft effects and and the, mm. the doing the zone of darkness the way they did with the, the the lighting on the ship being the way it was and and you so you see, you all you see are the lights of the ship in the windows basically because they're they're in darkness and uh and I thought that that was really really well done um but uh yeah you mentioned doomsday machine that that looked really good the planets all looked really good yeah. um cuz that that was a bit of a weak spot um, in the original show that they'd be orbiting a planet that was all pink or something. Then you get down there and the sky is blue and you're like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah. Continuity out the window. And like, do you know, remember right. Galileo 7 as well? You know, the, sh- the shuttle, right. shuttle yeah. bay and taken off and stuff. Fantastic episode. And uh, really yeah. well, really well rendered. And it looks, it's not like 21st century graphics just thrown at the show. They still kept the spirit of it um, without yes. making it look it. too pardon the pun alien to what we saw back in in the in the 60s right i'm so glad that 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 mike akuda was involved in that because he you know it's he's a fantastic artist and has such a good eye for what works and what doesn't and i'm uh, um glad that he that he um was involved in that and uh uh gave us the, the episodes that we got and going back to episodes like you said that you grew up so you were one of the lucky few that actually watched Star Trek back in its black and white days and the whole way, way, way through. So do you want to go back to some of the early days with Star Trek and maybe tell the people like um, how he got to come about getting into doing Star Trek, uh, Mr. Scott's Guide to uh, the Enterprise? Yeah, yeah, I remember um, on that, I think it was a Friday night back after the second season. Um, I remember them putting up uh, on the screen, you know, a shot of the Enterprise said Star Trek at the bottom, and a voice came on, an announcer came on saying, 
um, NBC, you know, is, is proud to announce that Star Trek has been renewed for a third season. Is basically telling people, stop writing us. You know, we get it. And <laughs> because of the letter campaign that they'd gotten and that just, you know, buried them in, in fan mail that B. Joe Trimble, you know, spearheaded. And uh, so I do remember seeing that. But, oh. um, uh, yeah, I was a Star Trek fan. Um, honestly, before I liked Lost in Space, before I liked Star Trek. Because I was younger and I was more into that, and uh, you know they had monsters and things and whatever. <laughs> but um, it, uh, um, as I got into the early seventies, um, started watching Star Trek more and more as it was in reruns, and um, got very, very into it, and uh, um, joined a local Star Trek club and 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 all of that, and uh, had quite a bit following in our high school actually. And uh, um, so we, I remember the days of, are they going to make a movie? Or are they not going to make a movie? Is it going to be a new series? Is it not going to be a new series? For a while there, everybody started to doubt that there would ever be any more Star Trek because it seemed that, that no matter what um, idea someone came up with, no matter what you read in the paper, no matter whatever, that nothing ever actually happened. And then Star Wars hit and everything changed and uh, Paramount finally got serious about it. And uh, uh, that led to the motion picture um, in 79, which is um, still my favorite of the movies. Um, the director's edition DVD is my favorite of the movies. And uh, absolutely love it. Love the music. Love the, the just everything about it. And uh, I know most, most people don't pick it as their favorite, but it is mine. And yeah. um we rated it fairly high, Damon, didn't we? We did, yeah. It's just, it's, it's un, it's one of the more unique Star Trek movies, and um, it just has so many qualities there that um, I think people, you know, may not pick up the first or second time viewing it, but if they kind of swing back around, and you know, I do agree with you, like the director's cut, um, it's just fantastic, and uh, some of the scenes are just almost operatic in it. You know, the whole unveil of uh, the Enterprise and stuff like that as well, just. An amazing story as well. So good choice. Good choice. I like it. And it was really the only one of the first six movies that, you know, boldly went. You know, I mean, they went into a completely unknown situation and uh, were exploring and trying to figure out what this thing was and where it came from and all of that. And it's really the only time in the movies that they did that. So True. Um, when you, when you look at it like that, when you look at it like that, and like one of the cool things that you were talking about there um, when you were growing up with Star Trek and stuff, how... I just I, I find it amazing how history repeats itself because again the community for so many years recently are like was there going to be new movies is there going to be a new TV show and no matter how many like petition campaigns went on like it's only now that we have the whole reboot movies out and the new Star Trek Discovery as well so it's amazing you know even though there's many years separating that like the fan base hasn't really changed and it's still as passionate and you know fanatical as ever which is always a good thing mm-hmm. so um did you were you at the premiere for the motion picture or did you see the first no, day i i i just went to the theater the, the first day it opened and was just totally blown away by the klingon shots at the beginning that was just just amazing um and uh again it's too bad that we didn't have the you know the finished effects and everything that we've got in the the director's edition 
because the movie never was finished early on, um, Paramount had declared a release date before the movie, you know, was anywhere near finished. And so everybody was, you know, their backs were up against the wall and they were delivering, you know, wet film prints to theaters just, you know, because it, they had this hard date that they had to meet. Um, so there were effects that were left out. There were things undone. There were, there were, you know, some awkward edits and whatever, cause it was mm. a rushed through, you know, first draft basically. And, uh, I loved it then too, but I'm so glad that, uh, Robert Wise got to go in and, uh, finish it and make it the movie that he wanted it to be and to, uh, um, add all the little touches and things that he had wanted there, you know, from the beginning. So, um, and I, w- I did not really get involved in Star Trek per se um, until 1982. Um, I was hired. There was, you may have heard about this. There was a convention in Houston in 1982 called the Ultimate Fantasy that wound up being how not to do a convention. And it was just, it wound up being called the Con of Wrath. And uh, <laughs> it was just an awful, awful experience for everyone involved um but uh you might want to research that because it 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 was just amazingly poorly done um the people putting it on had tried um to ask exorbitant amounts for tickets thinking like oh well star trek fans will pay anything well no they won't and you know they were trying to charge i don't know 75 or 100 dollars you know per seat and this is 1982 wow oh. and it was just you know ridiculous prices back then and um they you know they would have had to have sold i don't know how many tens of thousands of tickets to break even and i don't know that they even sold a thousand i mean it it, it just so it, it oh it was it was just awful none, um, none of the actors who appear all the regulars except Leonard Nimoy um were there and uh, Mark Leonard was there, um, and uh, but none of them wound up being paid, um, oh. except for William Shatner, who had gotten paid up front. But none of the others wound up being paid. But they 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 forged ahead and they did the show, and because they didn't want the fans who had paid to be disappointed, and um, it was an interesting experience. And I had been hired um, to do a. Um, door prize model a four-foot model of the enterprise the refit enterprise um in a display case and so i built that and it was delivered and then the check bounced and um the week after the show i wound up uh, a friend of mine and i wound up going down back down and repossessing the model and uh ultimately i sold it to a collector in in california um but uh, that was quite an experience. That was my the, my oh. first actual involvement in Star Trek outside of just going to conventions. And that, that, that was kind of where I crossed over from just being a fan to being actively involved. And then in 1985, um, I proposed to Pocket Books um, because there were, were so many differences between the refit enterprise and um the one that we'd seen in the original show um i mean just very very i mean i used to say that the only parts of the old ship that were left over in the refit were you know a nut and bolt in a shadow box on the wall of scotty's quarters is what i used i I used to 
tell people just you know kidding around because there are so few similarities and uh, um, I proposed to Pocketbooks to do a new set of deck plans um, for the new enterprise the way that Franz Joseph had done and they looked at it and thought about it and they said well how about if we do a book instead of just deck plans and I said okay so I drew up a proposal and uh, originally it was going to be 160 pages and um, uh, went through and basically outlined what would be on each page, what, what the content would be like. <clears throat> it would originally have, was going to have fold out deck plans and uh, a, a lot of material that wound up not being in the book um, because a few months into it, once I had signed the contract, uh, about a month into it, um, they started, the publisher started getting cold feet because none of the books that had come out to support the motion picture had done well. Hmm. And in fact, they'd all lost money. Nobody, none of those authors ever made a, a dime in royalties. And that was why there, there were no books for Wrath of Khan. They, they put out um, a black and white photo novel that wasn't very well done. And I think a magazine, I'm, I'm not sure what else, but there was very, very little um, uh, merchandising support for Wrath of Khan. And um, so the publisher was very nervous um, about my book. And they were pretty sure that they were going to lose money, but they wanted to use it to test the waters. So about a month in, they said, okay, we'd like to cut the page count back from 160 to 128. So you need to go through and figure out what you can lose. And so the deck plans were the first thing to go. They said, no, we, you know, that, would, that would really drive the printing cost up. So we need to get rid of those. I'm like, okay. And I went through and figured out what else could be dropped um wound up losing uh the most of anything that had to do with the motion picture you know the uniform diagrams um just you know all a lot of things that i really wanted to be in there and so the book became focused on wrath of khan since that had been the more popular movie so you see those uniforms you see that phaser you see hmm. uh whatever um and uh, um, went ahead uh, on the book, had um, a very short deadline because uh, by the time they got my contract to me, it was uh, late spring of uh, 1986, um, May, June, something like that. And um, they wanted the book in bookstores for Star Trek IV which was supposed to be released in December. And so, which meant that I had to deliver the book to them. Um, I think in, uh, and this was really, really rushing it, but I had to deliver the book to them in September. And uh, I was doing it camera ready, which meant basically all they had to do was just, you know, shoot printing plates and drop in the photos and go. I was I was doing everything on the book. I was doing the typesetting. I was writing it. I was doing everything for it. And um, so uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but I agreed to this ridiculously short deadline and um, went forward on it um, and started to get frustrated because the red tape um, involved in working with uh, Paramount was just atrocious. I mean, I would say, okay, I really, really need this, a picture of this particular shuttlecraft. 
And so, and I ha- I would ask the publisher, the publisher would ask Paramount, and, you know, four weeks later, I'd get a, a, an image in the mail, uh, you know, an 8 by 10 glossy or something, which was the wrong shuttlecraft, and, and, and it was just, it was ridiculous. I wasn't getting any of the, the reference material I needed. And so I finally just called the publisher up, and I said, look, um, the only way I'm going to be able to meet this deadline is if I go out there and go through the art department stuff, I go through their drawings, I go through the, the photography myself, I go, you know, whatever, go to the sound stages, um, take measurements off of the sound stages, all of the, you know, what I said, that, that's it. That, that's the only way I'm going to meet this. So they uh, talked to Paramount's licensing and got the okay and uh, um, said, it's okay, they'll, they'll let you come out, you know, call the Star Trek offices and set it up. And so I did and set up to uh, go out there and, and uh, visit them on a Friday in August of 1986. And uh, flew out and got there on Friday morning, bright and early, eight o'clock. And expected to spend the better, you know, the better part of the morning, if not the entire morning, on the soundstage, getting the information I needed, taking my measurements, doing my drawings, whatever. And then uh, spend the entire afternoon in uh, licensing, going over all the art department materials, um, you know, stage, you know, floor plans and blueprints and photography and everything, as I said. And got there to the Star Trek offices and the person running the office um, did not make my job easy <laughs> and rather than taking me over to the sound stages and letting me do what I needed to do um, he had a couple of friends visiting from Germany and so he decided instead to um, give them a tour of the entire lot all the TV show sets, all the movie sets, all the whatever, and just kind of tack me onto it. And I'm like, okay, this isn't what I'm here for. And uh, finally, almost at noon, you know, and I'm in a panic because it's almost noon. I've got all this stuff to do with the art department in the afternoon. We get to stage nine, finally. I go in and I start to um, set up on the table, they had a, a big sawhorse table set up. I, I kind of started to get out all my materials, my measuring stuff, and my sketch pads and, and whatever. And uh, he comes over and says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm about to do what I'm here for, get the material from so I can do my book. And he said, oh, no, you can't do that now. And I said, wait a minute, I flew out here. This is what I'm here for. And he said, oh, well, I'm sorry, but we're going to lunch. You're, you, you'll, you'll have to get someone else to, to bring you back in here. And I said, no. I need to do this for my book. I'm under contract. And he goes, well, I'm sorry, but no, I can't just leave you in here and we're leaving. So you see, he said, I'll give you 10 minutes, but that's it. And I'm like, I can't do this in 10 minutes. So anyway, um, I'm very frustrated, wind up leaving there. I go over to, to the uh, licensing uh, department, <clears throat> meet a lovely um woman there named Amy Raphael who was just wonderful and so helpful and so sweet and um, gave me everything I needed and I told her I said I didn't get anything at the soundstage that I needed they 
it just I don't understand why, but he didn't let me do what I needed to do. He made other plans. And uh, she said, well, the only person who can let you back on that soundstage is Ralph Winter. He's the executive producer of Star Trek IV. He's the only one who can let you back in. And I'm like, okay, well, is, can we call him? So she tried to call his office. And he wasn't in. He was out screening dailies. And uh, so she tried a few times while I was there. And in the meantime, I'm going through just, you know, all these ring binders filled with, with you know, slides, photography, you know, pictures that they've taken during the course of production of the first three movies. And I'm going through just stacks of blueprints and all these other things, picking out all the things that I needed. And, you know, everything I needed, I set aside in one pile. Everything I didn't went in another pile. And so um, finally, five o'clock rolls around. And we still haven't heard from Ralph Winter. And uh, Amy, uh, she goes, I'm so sorry. He still hasn't called back. He's not in his office. And I said, okay. She goes, but here, I'll give you the, the number for his office. And maybe when you get back to your hotel room, if you keep calling, maybe you can get a hold of somebody. And um, I thanked her. And um, I was very concerned because this was on a Friday. And my plane was going to leave on Monday, early afternoon, around 1.30, uh, to fly home. And I had planned just to spend the weekend kind of doing the tourist thing, you know, go to Universal or, or whatever, Disneyland. And uh, so I drove back to the hotel and called Ralph Winter's office and spoke to his secretary. And I explained the situation to her. She goes, yes, she goes, you know, Amy told us. And uh, he's, Ralph's still not back yet. And I said, well, please ask him to call me. Here's my number in the, uh, in the hotel. And uh, so she did. Uh, uh, took down the number. And then about a half an hour later, I get a phone call, and it's Ralph Winter. And uh, so I explained the entire situation to him and just tell him, say, I'm really concerned because without this, I can't meet my deadline and I'll, you know, I'll have violated my contract. And, uh, and he was frustrated with, you know, what had happened because it should never have, have happened. I should never have had to bother him. And, uh, but he was wonderful. And he said, okay. And I had told him that I'd brought a camera, you know, because I was planning on doing the tourist thing. He said, okay, you have a camera there, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, and you have all your sketch stuff, right? And I said, yes. He said, can you be at the soundstage at 8 o'clock on Monday morning? And I said, sure. And he said, okay, you come over, you bring your stuff, you bring your camera, you bring your sketch pad, you bring everything you need. And what we will do is we will take you to stage nine and we will open the door and we will lock you in. And then you just pick up the phone and call us and tell us when you're finished. And I'm like, great, perfect. So I go over Monday morning and uh, having spent a weekend thinking that my troubles were over, I go over Monday morning and uh, um, park on the studio lot, walk over to the soundstage, and there's a security guard standing there at the door to the soundstage waiting to let me in. And he looks down, he sees my camera bag and my tripod. He goes, is that a camera? And I said, yes. He said, uh, nobody takes a camera on stage nine. And I said, uh, well, Ralph Winter told me that I could. I have a deadline, and the only way I can do it now 
since I can't be here very long this morning, the only way I can can get what I need is to just, you know, basically take a lot of pictures and then study them after I get home. And he said, well, no, he says, nobody has ever taken a camera on stage nine. That's, it's, it's a, it's a rule. And I said, well, Ralph Winter said I could. And he goes, no, Ralph Winter wouldn't have said that. And I said, well, he did. So the security guard goes, okay, come with me. So he leads me all the way across the studio lot. We go to the security office. And, uh, um, we walk in, there's this lady behind the desk and she says, what's the problem? And the guard tells her, says, this person says that Ralph Winter said that they could take a camera on stage nine. And she goes, nobody takes a camera on stage nine. And the guard says, well, that's what I said. So I'm, I, at this point, I'm just so frustrated. And I said, listen, could you just call Ralph Winter and have him tell you that it's okay? Because he told me it was okay. And she looks at me like I'm trying to pull something. And uh, she goes, okay. So she calls Ralph Winter's house. And keep in mind, by now, it's like 8.30 in the morning or something. So it's still oh. pretty early. He hasn't come in yet. He's still at home. So she calls, and Ralph Winter's wife answers. And uh, the lady at the desk, she goes, I'm so sorry. This is so-and-so over at security. Um, could I please talk to Ralph? We have a, a problem over here. So he comes on the phone. And she says, yes, we have a person here doing a book for um, Simon & Schuster. And... Um, They said that you said that they could take a camera on stage nine. And I'm standing there and she's listening on the phone. And then she goes, well, that's what I said. I said that no one ever takes a camera on stage nine. And I'm thinking, oh, great. He changed his mind. And she goes, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, on the phone, whatever. And she goes, right. She goes, well, that's that's what I said. Uh Uh-huh, okay. And then she says, okay, thank you, and hangs up and looks at me and looks at the guard and says, yeah, let her in. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, he had told, apparently he had just said, you know, just, yes, you know, pictures are fine. The camera is fine. So mm-hmm. he, he took me back over to the soundstage and uh, locked me in. And so for about three hours that morning, uh, I had the Enterprise all to myself. Nobody else was in there. Nobody else was on the soundstage. And uh, I set up my stuff and proceeded to go around and take pictures of everything that I could get pictures of. And little detail shots of the little corner of this and the corner of that and what this looks like and what it looks like behind this that you don't ever see. and, And all these different things, angles that you don't really get to see in the movies. And uh, had a tripod and a very long cable release. So I got a picture of myself standing in the transporter. Um, <laughs> Has to be done. Which, you know, you, you have to do. Yeah. And it was interesting. I noticed that the, um, the transporter pads and the corridor floors were made out of the same stuff. It was this resin honeycomb that um, uh, basically for the transporter pads, it was like they'd had a huge cylinder of it and just kind of cut slices out of and they used those for the pads and uh the floor was the the corridor floors were the same thing but they were painted black exact same material and um the transporter was really the only set that pretty much looked like they could just start filming on it the way it was it 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 looked pretty much identical to um 
the way it had been seen on screen. Everything else, all the other sets had been, in one way or another, redressed a little bit. Um, Kirk's quarters, um, they had started to, to redress Kirk's quarters into an apartment for, um, uh, Star Trek, what was it, Jillian? Was that her name? Um, yeah. Uh, that uh, um, apparently there was going to be a scene at the end of the movie once they had gotten back to the, you know, the future um, with her. We were going to see an apartment that they had given her. But um, I guess they decided not to pursue that because um, they, they were only about halfway through redoing his, uh, Kirk's quarters to be an apartment for her and um, never finished it. So it was half painted one color, half painted another color, some, you know, little wall decor stuck in here and there. Hmm. Um, there, uh, uh, the bridge, uh, was, um, interesting. First of all, all the chairs were missing because the week before I'd gone out there, someone had broken in and had slashed all the seats, slashed the upholstery oh. on, on all the bridge chairs. Star Wars fun. So they, <laughs> yeah, so they I, they had sent those out to be reupholstered, and so there were no chairs. Um, the back half of the bridge was the way that you see it at the end of Star Trek IV for about fifteen seconds, with the um, you know the white and the the white walls and the the silver um, wall braces and um, the black flooring and and the first acutograms that we that we saw in Star Trek. Um, and the and the flat panels with the touch the touch panels, that's the first time we'd seen those in Star Trek, and uh, that was Mike's first, um, as, as I, I believe, was Mike's first job, um, do, uh, working on on uh, the sets for Star Trek. Cool. Um, but that was only the back half of the bridge. The front half, if you were like at the captain's chair looking forward, the front half of the bridge was still exactly as it had been after Wrath of Khan into Star Trek three with burn marks on, you know, spray painted on the walls and, you know, the, the actual buttons on the panels and all that stuff. They never, they didn't bother to redress the front because it wasn't going to be seen. So the bridge was kind of, you know, schizophrenic. Uh, it was, you know, front one kind and the back another kind. And brilliant. I'd you love know, that. The, <laughs> the bridge you saw kind of depended on which way you were facing. <laughs> and uh, so um, uh, that was, you know, fascinating. And uh, Sick Bay had been redressed into the bar that we saw in Star Trek Three. The beds had been pulled out and replaced with booths and tables. And um, the beds actually had been just thrown into engineering. So they were kind of piled up in the corner next to the warp you know, the warp shaft and, and, uh, and that was interesting. I would have loved to have seen all the sets pristine, but, but they weren't. Mm. Um, one thing that was a lot of fun, uh, uh, seeing was in McCoy's office or back behind McCoy's office, um, in Star Trek, the motion picture, you can see it. I think they, they actually in wrath of Khan, I think they actually took the room and made it part of the transporter room, but, and uh, um, behind McCoy's office, through the, there's this wall, this big window on the wall. And behind that, you see these silver kind of oval, um, 
I don't even know what to call them, little things on the wall, kind of in rows on the wall, these little oval um, metal um, look like covers to something next to each other with a little blue label in the middle. Hmm. These were supposed to be like specimen containers, like for where they'd frozen uh, specimens of, of tissue and cultures and whatever. And what was interesting is that on those in the middle of each one, there was a label that said, you know, uh, live cultures, danger, and it said Andromeda strain under it as a, as a little <laughs> nod to Robert Wise, who had directed that movie. Excellent. So you can't ever see it in the movie, but, you know, I, I got a picture of it. But you see, you know, it says Andromeda strain back there. So that I thought that was, was a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, yeah, and it was fun seeing how tricky the engineering set was. It only looks right from the front. There are like two camera angles where you can be, and it looks correct. Anything else, and it completely is thrown off because the warp shaft, as it goes back, gets smaller and smaller, and the floor slopes up, and the walls slope in, and the ceiling slopes down. And if a regular-sized person went, you know, goes and stands at the back of the warp shaft, if you're at the front of the room, he looks like he's 20 feet tall, you know, because it's <laughs> it's forced perspective. And wow. uh, um, so that was interesting, seeing you know some of the tricks that they do to make our set look bigger when this they don't really have enough room on the sound stage to to build it all the way out um there were paintings leaning up against the walls in some places that they would use to extend a quarter to make it look longer you know just flat backdrop paintings mm. um and uh those were interesting to see um i went upstairs in engineering and looked down at the shaft that that shot that kirk takes in the first movie where he looks down and you see down there and uh so if you stand in just the right spot you know the, you know, the there's a painting on the floor under the shaft because of course the shaft doesn't go down any farther than the main engineering level but there's a painting stretched across the base of it that makes it look like it keeps going down so what you see in the movie is not an effect added in that's just a, that's a matte painting or not a matte painting but it's, it's a backdrop painting that was on the floor and lit to look like it keeps going down and uh, um, that was interesting to see too. That was was uh, was pretty tricky. Lots of fun. I, I like. I'd say a lot of us now are thinking, "Geez, we, we would have a ball playing on the." Oh, yeah. the <laughs> the it, it was. And there was a lot of other stuff that, that they had just stuck in there. To, I guess because they didn't have anywhere else to put it. They had the uh, the life size uh, travel pod um, was in there. The travel pod interior was there. The uh, the dry dock model was there. Um, cool. The Inter Enterprise wasn't there, but the dry dock model was. Did you um, get a photograph? Dry dock model. Oh, yeah, I got a picture of it. Yeah, uh, that that, um, that or not got this, destroyed, unfortunately. I can't remember what uh, Star Trek they were going to use it for. I think it could have been Generations, but when they went to open up the case, they were there like, "Oh no, it's gone!" And then oh, they realized yeah. down below all the little pieces were in the box, and it had oh. actually falling apart so i think it was i think oh, we're going boy. to generate the enterprise b so oh. yeah unfortunately it had a a tragic end because it is it's it's, it's a lovely it's a oh, lovely yeah, it, was, it was brilliant i i got a picture it but it was so. it's too bad but they and they had um um the pieces of kirk's apartment the one where mccoy gave him the glasses mm. um that was that those were that was up against one wall and they had the model of Jupiter uh, that the Enterprise flies past in the first movie 
um, which was I don't know maybe twenty inches across. And when you and when you knocked on it, it felt like a billiard ball. I don't know what it was made out of, but um, <laughs> it was just this this probably fiberglass or something. But it was just this globe that had been airbrushed to look like like Jupiter. And yeah, oh. uh, got a picture of that too. 